everyone. It's Maya Geis with part two of Sugarball, Behind the Book, a companion podcast series where I talk to R. Lee Proctor about his new book, Sugarball, a novel of Negro League baseball. Today I chat with R. Lee about the story's protagonist and narrator, Peanut, a 12-year-old bat boy who was changed forever by his experience working for the Pittsburgh Crawfords in 1937. My name is Clyde Wiggins, but everyone calls me Peanut because I've always been small for my age. Except now I'm a tick under five feet tall, which is just about average for a 12-year-old and big enough to play Cracker Jack shortstop on the sandlots when I have the time. I love baseball. I love baseball more than I love Christmas Day, hot chocolate, and the last day of school combined. I love baseball more than I love my mother, and I love her a lot. I love baseball the way my boss, Mr. Gus Greenlee, loves money. Mr. Greenlee is the greatest man I know and a personal friend of mine. He owns the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the greatest baseball team in all of baseball, not just the Negro National Leagues. I'm the biggest fan of the Crawfords in all western Pennsylvania, which is how I almost came to be stabbed. Here's how that happened. to be back with you. And I guess the first question I'd love to ask you is how would you describe the role of the narrator? I know in Sugar Ball there's we have a great narrator and I'd just love to understand how you how you think about his role. The the narrator of um, Sugar Ball is uh, a guy named P- uh, Peanut. He's a 12-year-old. He's a, the bat boy for the Pittsburgh Crawfords who were the number one um, Negro League team in 1937. They had the three best players uh, in the Negro Leagues, uh, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, and Satchel Page, And um, Peanut, the, re- the reason I chose Peanut is two reasons. First of all, as a 12-year-old, I wanted to get a young person so that their younger people would be attracted to the book and they could take the journey with him. Of course, everybody can take the journey with him, but especially for uh, that perspective of a young person uh, being able to identify with Peanut. One of my models was certainly um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I've gotten in my day job is the ability to take apart stories and kind of wonder, why do they work? And I'll, if you ask people who the protagonist of To Kill a Mockingbird is, a lot of people will say Atticus Finch. But that's not true. If you look at the story, the key to who is the protagonist of a novel is who changes. Mm. And in To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the reasons that book has been so successful for so many years is that Scout is, we see the story through her eyes, and she is the one who changes. And the change that she goes through is quite poignant, which is, she understands that it's absolutely vital to do the right thing even if you don't get the result you want. You know, when her father loses that case, it doesn't make her a cynic. You know, she understands that her father is a hero. And as that character said in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, sometimes the lost causes are the ones you have to fight for the most. Hmm. Uh, the other advantage of having a 12-year-old hero 
is that he is sort of experiencing a lot of things in the world for the first time. Mm-hmm. As the book begins, he's a uh, he, he's a numbers collector. He goes around and uh, collects money for Gus Greenlee, a, a real person who was uh, kind of a racketeer in uh, Pittsburgh, 1937, ex-bootlegger who moved into the numbers racket. And um, he's he idolizes Gus Greenlee because Gus Greenlee's everything. He's the most important man in that part of Pittsburgh. He owns a nigger league baseball team. He owns a place called the Crawford Grill where all of the big bands come and play. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he's a guy who... When Thanksgiving comes around, hands out turkeys to everybody who, who needs one. Mm-hmm. And as we go through the book, Peanut's perspective necessarily changes because he's the hero in a way not unlike what happens to Scout in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you sort of alluded to the fact that in making Peanut this 12-year-old kid, who I will just say, like, I mean, on the one hand, we're in Peanut's head, right? But kids are also very honest. And so it is sort of fun to to read Peanut's honest reactions to the things that are happening around him. Mm-hmm. I'm just observing adults at work right. um, and play. Um, but, I mean, how much of yourself did you see in Peanut as a former 12-year-old who loves <laughs> baseball? Well, you're, you're, that, yeah, that's a very savvy thing to say because, uh, um, first of all, when I was 12, I was, like Peanut, completely obsessed with baseball. Peanut is just the center of his life is the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Mm -hmm. And Peanut is living out my fantasy because my fantasy was when I was 12, I wanted to be the bat boy for the L.A. Dodgers. I couldn't think of anything better in the world than to be able to go to Dodger Stadium every single day, be in the dugout with Sandy Kovacs, Don Drysdale, Maury Wills, to be right on the field to watch these guys play, you know, I I, I really was it was like something I just I, I dreamed of. Mm. The other element I think is interesting is you said that Peanut has brings an innocence to the way he sees the world. Mm-hmm. And writing the book, I was able to relive what it was like to be twelve years old and what I thought about the world and what you know what it was like to have the experiences I had. And so it was it was a lot of fun to be able to, you know, as he said, bring that honesty. You know, you can't BS a 12-year-old. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and he sees things that are hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. That a lot of things, you know, that, that he, he kind of goes, well, why, why, did, why is that happening the way it is? And you go, yeah, why is that happening the way it is? Mm-hmm. So that was a huge amount of fun. And one of the things we learn about Peanut, it's a part of his story, and it's a dynamic that sort of plays out as the book unfolds, but we learned that his father died of typhoid, um, and his mother was a waitress at also working for Gus Greenlee. Right. Um, and it's interesting because there is this point early on where you understand that um, Peanut is very loyal to Gus Greenlee. He sees him as a mentor, a bit of a father figure. Like, you know, I think at some point in the book he says that Gus Greenlee is the greatest man I know, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and then we, and then there's a moment where uh, Josh Gibson sort of swoops in and saves Peanut right. while he's out running an errand and doing the job he's doing for Gus Greenlee, right? Cause, right, right. Um, the job that he has collecting all the bets, it's a very dangerous one. Yes. Um, can't, you know, to be a kid running around with hordes of cash. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it's, you know, and, and so it, and 
it's interesting because Josh and Gus, you know, you see that you see Peanut's sort of transformation in the book as, as he changes his loyalties from Gus to Josh as he figures out actually who really has his back, who's sending him out into the danger versus who's there with him, you know, yeah. making sure that he's okay, that he's safe. Um, and you know, like you said earlier, that the, the 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 character that changes, the character that transforms, that's the protagonist. Right. Um, and and you know, in many ways, Peanuts changing idols mirror his transformation. You know, a love for money and success over a love for doing the right thing and being a good person. I'm um, putting the team before myself. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's an explicit theme of the book. In fact. You know, I'm, I'm sure you remember this, but uh, uh, in the beginning of the book, uh, Peanut um, gets the job as Bat Boy because uh, as he's trying to collect bets, as he says, he's threatened by these kids who are trying to rob him. Mm-hmm. Josh Gibson saves his life. He has to con- he has to go see Gus Greenlee, who basically says, uh, "You were daydreaming about the big game instead of paying attention to what you were doing, weren't you?" And he mm-hmm. goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> But Gus says, well, how would you like, you know, I don't think you're cut out to be collect, collecting my the bets. How about if I make you the bat boy of the Crawfords? And Peanut just thinks this is the greatest thing of all time. But, of course, Gus Greenlee, being Gus Greenlee, he has a, um, uh, a, a different agenda. He says, uh, I need a spy on the team. Mm-hmm. I need to know what these guys are really up to and what they're thinking because Satchel Paige is always just about to jump the team to do something else, you know. Mm. Satchel Paige was the highest paid baseball player in America in 1937. Mm -hmm. And he did that because he was getting a salary from Gus Greenlee, but a promoter would come and say, Satchel, uh, we're having an all-star game at Yankee Stadium. I'll give you 2,000 bucks if they show up for two days. And you go, okay, fine. And he'd leave and jump the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gus Green would say, well, if you do that again, I'm going to fire you. And he said, no, you won't. I do it all the time. And you're going to – I'm I'm so worth it to you. I'm the biggest draw in baseball, so you're going to keep hiring me back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which was true. He did. And speaking of Satchel Page, it's funny, like, you know, a tool some writers use in telling stories is to have a clone. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, Satchel Page is, the, is a clone for Peanut because they have – they undergo this a similar transformation and having to learn that some it's not money isn't everything and at the end of the day you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and so Satchel you know by the end of the book is very humbled also by the lessons he's learned from Josh <laughs> that's true that's true and uh, you know one of the things that I really struggled with is that I did not want to make Satchel Page the antagonist in the book mm-hmm. uh, but. As the story evolves, uh, he becomes a, a center of the drama of the book that happens in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And I made sure that Satchel makes some bad decisions while he's in the Dominican. And I wanted to make sure those were true to his character. Um, if you read all the biographies of Page, I think the best way I've ever seen it put is that uh, Cool Papa Bell said... Uh, Satchel was easily led, <laughs> meaning that if somebody offered him, you know, more money to play in a tournament someplace, he'd do it. He was completely motivated by making money. And you cannot blame him for that in 1937 when 
you know, it's like they, they were badly paid, they were cheated, they were, you know, treated badly, and he was going to be the guy who was going to get paid what he was worth. Mm-hmm. And that leads to an interesting situation in the Dominican that almost gets all of the players murdered. <laughs> and, true story. And um, anyway, so yeah, you're right. That, th- those two stories mirror each other. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Satchel Paige and some of the other big characters in the Negro Leagues in the next episode. So stay tuned for that. And I'll catch <laughs> you next time, Rich. Sugarball Behind the Book is produced and edited by Matthew Solari and hosted by myself, Maya Geis. This episode's version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game was arranged and performed by E. Jammy Jams. You can find Sugarball, a novel of Negro League baseball, everywhere books are available. To learn more about R. Lee, visit richlyspun.com. <laughs>